I've been warning you about a lot of this for a decade. I feel like I've been writing about responsible AI and AI ethics for over a decade. And I thought, God, no one's listening. It took Netflix three and a half years to get to a million users. Mm. You know, it took Jack five days. And now it's at like 150 million. So it's in your social conscious now. All right. So these developments come that way. So yes, part of me can't help but say, I've learned all these lessons already. Now, all of a sudden, woo, everybody's woke up. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, it's a true honor uh, to have our guest with us today. Uh, we say this a lot, but I really mean it this time. This person needs no introduction. We have uh, the former CEO of IBM, Ginny Ramadi. Ginny, thank you so much for coming on the show. And you know, just before we get started, we were talking a little bit, and I wanted. To, I read the book. You know, I, I you know I bought multiple copies. It's an amazing book. So everybody here listening, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you know you go read this. It's fantastic book. Thank just thank you so much for coming on the show and doing this with us. Oh, my my pleasure. I was very excited when you asked me. I think you guys have a very special recipe for what you do thank and you. a great reach. So this is to me uh, as special to me as to you. Thank oh. you. One of the reasons I really like that you have I have a book is. We need people like you to be able to tell your story. And for, you know, for we talk like a lot of our audience uh, and the people that we hang out with, like typical tech Silicon Valley community, when we look at them, there are not that many stories, especially of like really strong women leaders who've come up, you know, through adversity and started from scratch and built something on their own through hard work. And somehow hard work has now become a very controversial topic. I love the book. I love the fact that you actually have a book mm -hmm. because a lot of really accomplished people don't have time for writing books or they just don't feel like their story is special enough to be told. So I'm really appreciative of the fact that you actually have it and have it out there. Thank you. Arti, I have to tell you, I mean, I never had on my list to write a book. And one of the people that convinced me as well to do it was Indra Nui, oh, who had okay. written. Yeah. So she was a little ahead of me in writing hers. And I know when I had was retiring, I'd been at IBM 40 years. I had plans of what I was going to do. I work on a big nonprofit. And a number of people said, no, 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 for the reasons RTU just said, they said there's just not that many women. And the story, the journey, it starts with my father abandoning my family and us being on financial aid and how you could end up where you've ended up. I finally came around to doing it. In if I could write a book in the spirit of being in service of other people, mm -hmm. meaning could I be vulnerable enough and tell enough true stories, not not that they don't tell true, but I mean that, mm -hmm. that people could learn from them. And yeah. uh, that was a really hard thing for me to, to do, to share, because I spent a whole lifetime not sharing those things. Mm -hmm. I finished and I'm, I'm hoping to those listening and those who buy the book that it's called Good Power, that it's meant to... I hope share practical tools and techniques yeah. for building your career or for doing whatever change you want to drive. So that's what was behind it. Indra's book is fantastic. She came on the show and it's probably one of her most popular episodes so far, but I think this one's going to beat her. So, you know, like, well, well we're not competing with each other. We're supporting each other <laughs> now. Right, that's right. That's exactly uh, right. I, I like that. I like, uh, but I think your professional accomplishments, some of it, I think some of us have just learned or new over the years and you go into details on that and we'll get into that, for example, Watson and PwC and we'll get into that. But maybe this may be a good starting point. One of my favorite parts uh, in the book is you talking about the day you found out you're going to become 
the next CEO of IBM. No. Historic moment. Um, and walk us through how it felt in the moment and what you did right after, because I think they're both quite special. What Triyan's referring to is I was in my office. Of course, I did I did the day prior. You're speaking the day of, right, of yeah, the announcement. Right. But of course, I had learned the day prior uh, that the news would come out the next day. And so I can remember watching the clock tick, 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 tick as it went by because it would be announced after the markets closed because it's obviously market moving information and at 4 p.m. And uh, I quietly sat there and as I went into a conference room with other people, as the news started to come across the ticker, talking heads, et cetera, you know, would both announce the news. Everyone wanted to talk about me being a woman. Uh, everyone mispronounced but the name. But in that moment, I only watched a few minutes. I think what you're referring to is what was more important to me. I remember pushing myself away from the table and getting up and going back into my office. And I made about 20 phone calls. And I called all the people that I felt in my life had really made a difference that this moment belonged to them as much as it belonged to me. And I can still remember it very vividly. And I think many were surprised to get a phone call because it was everyone from the very first manager I had um, to the, yes, past CEOs, but it would have been customers. It was a family member. It was friends. Because I really feel like, I think many of us do, we're a composite of all these other people <laughs> who, you know, just out of acts of kindness, did things that formed us. And I really wanted to share that moment with them. So that's what I that's what I did for the next two hours was call them and, and as much congratulate them. I, I love that because uh, so many of us have, you know, amazing career moments or personal moments, you know, uh, maybe not of the magnitude that, you know, you had just experienced at that time. But I, you know, I feel kind of the same. I never had the instinct to be like, I'm going to call everybody who has helped me to this moment. So I, I was just like so blown away. Uh, by that, I'm curious, what is the reaction to some of them? I'm like, wait, I just saw you on the news, and you're, you know, no. this person's popping up on my caller ID. Well, uh, they were shocked. In in most most reaction was, I can't believe this is what you're doing. Yeah, is calling me yeah. when you should be, you know, on TV or something. And I was like, no, in this moment, this is what I should be doing. And I and I and I think the lesson again, the back to my headset of writing the book on and mentioning this was. You know, networks, I think people think a network is formed by just who you know mm -hmm. and how you connect everything. And I came to believe networks were formed by what you give. You know, early on in my career, someone said to me, whenever anyone asks you for help, give it. And mm -hmm. don't expect anything in return in that mm -hmm. moment. And if yeah. you do, it comes back to you over time. Yeah. And I felt those were all people that had done that with me. Yeah. They had, you know, had learned from them and I needed to thank them in that moment. It's, it's amazing you say that. We talk about this a lot. And one of the reasons this show came about is we believe in what, what we call you know the infinite game, right? Um, we think of it as for us to be where we are uh, here, building the things, building the technology companies and the work that we do, it is standing on shoulders of so many other people who kind of took a chance on us. Uh, our first yeah. jobs were at Microsoft. Okay. We were nobody, like young punks who just didn't deserve to be in there in like the first room. We got through the interview and we we're like, wow, like, you know, how low did their bar go for us to like make it here? And, you know, people just took a chance with us, in us. And the same, ha you know, applies here as we went through like different technology companies and learned a lot. And so this is our way of paying it forward and giving back. And we also think the best leaders we've met in life are the people who will mentor or who will do things without expecting things in return. 
and they just play this long infinite game where a lot of it is about it's less transactional i do this and then you do this in return but it's like no i just want to help you that's it like i have not and so initially when we came to silicon valley we'd be like why why do they do that like I, what do they want why are they being so nice to us like what is the agenda and you realize that that is just how people are wired and you just want this like the people have this mentality of just wanting to pay it forward and do the right thing which i think yeah. is amazing it, it it is and i think you know if you've been the benefactor of it, you want to do it more for other people, right? right and right. and you you said, RT, a really important word, which I try to get across in the book a lot, which is that don't think of networks or people as transactional, yeah. right? That that and it doesn't mean that it's quote just relational, but it means it's something that endures through mm. time. Mm. And and my experience is, in the moments you need it the most, they come back to you, and uh, you know, not expect it when something you know, and it's always in trying times. Yeah. when you need something or they offer a perspective. And this is why I say like, if there was a time I did not make time for those relationships because I thought, oh no, I have to work. I have to stay focused, focused, focused. Yeah. Maybe they don't do so much of this now, but early on companies had sports teams and like, and I would send my husband to go play because I'm like, I have to work. <laughs> I don't have time. You go, you know, and you're a better athlete anyways, you go. That wasn't really the point. You know, I'm thinking, no, go play the sport. I got to work. But the point was relationships. Yeah. And I, I really believe that idea that um, not the jet to do sports, but that um, if you give over time, like when I would be in my CEO job, but of course it's the hardest, the more varied the relationships, you probably find this, the more perspective you get for a problem. How many times people would say to me, hey, quit worrying about that. That is just not important. Or no, look at this a different way. You need to look at it differently. And when things are the toughest, that's when you need all those different viewpoints and they come from those same people, usually. And if somebody had told me without reading the book, hey, the former CEO of IBM is writing a biography, you know, I could have guessed some of the contours, you know, building Watson, the stories of, uh, you know, some of the business stories. But what really maybe blew me away is the story of your childhood and the journey you talk about through there. Uh, you know, maybe talk to us just a little bit about like, how did it feel to be like, okay, I'm going to you know, maybe reveal some things which maybe people didn't know about you or maybe you hadn't revealed before because it is quite personal. Um, you you suffer a lot of adversity through your childhood and how that maybe shaped you uh, in your young 20s and 30s because I found it like deeply moving and I suspect anybody who reads this will too. Well, thank you, Shriam. And I, I think it's going to get to a heart of something that uh, you both said is a bit controversial. I was raised by, I like to say, sometimes strong women. And, um, and not that men can't be strong, don't get me wrong, but um, my great-grandma was the last survivor out in Belarus, Russia, before she came uh, here, not speaking English, and worked uh, third shift uh, cleaning bathrooms in the Wrigley Building in Chicago to put all her money into U.S. savings bonds, which would one day save our house, a little to know. And then my grandma was twice widowed by her early 20s and would find herself uh, hand-making uh, lampshades mm -hmm. for people's homes. And, but what I learned from them, and then I get to my mother, was, hey, don't complain. When things are rough, their hard work makes it better. Mm. And I know you just said a minute about hard work, but that is in my brain that when hard work makes things better. In fact, it's hard for me to associate working hard and not something not getting better, right? There's nothing worse than that, actually. Yeah. And so that's one. But to what Sriram, I think you're speaking of is, uh, I mentioned when I was a youngster, my father abandoned our family. My mom was only 32 years old. 
Um, there were four of us, and I happened to walk into the garage, and I overheard my father say to my mother, I really don't care what happens to you. I don't care what happens to any of you. You could go work on the street for all I care. And I watched him walk away. It's not a story of my dad, though. It's a story of how my mom reacted. And that's actually how I start the book, because my mom never cried. She never said anything to us. But he, he left her with no money, no food, no home. Um, she had never worked outside our home. She didn't have a college degree. She had gone to high school. She was just determined that the story would not end that way. And we watched her. She had to go get some community college, and call it in our country, a little bit of education so she could get a job, a little bit more, get a little better job. Uh, and in the meantime, we were on uh, welfare, uh, food stamps, things that I knew were very painful for her to have to go through. Mm-hmm. You know, eventually could get off of financial aid. It's a good reason those things exist in our country. They're trying to help people transition from a bad situation to self-sufficiency. My mom taught me, and I think this is relevant to everyone listening, that never let someone else define who you are. She would not let my dad define her as a victim or as a, you know, a a poor woman on welfare. She wasn't going to let that be the ending. And we would each learn, okay, that means, you know, only we should define ourselves. And honestly, through my life, I would learn that to be true for myself, for my company, Mm -hmm. a country that, and when you don't define yourself, somebody else will come in and do it. And you may not like the answer to that. Mm -hmm. So this idea of never let someone else define you is the biggest thing in addition to hard work. And one more I really took away in my upbringing was, you know, my mom wasn't dumb. My mom was pretty smart, but she didn't have access to the things you and I have had. She didn't have access to education, to a college, to anything. It taught me that aptitude and access are two different things. And honestly, aptitude is spread evenly in the world. Access to opportunity is not. And this will play a role in my life as you read the book that will color everything I do through my whole life about getting more people opportunities because there's a lot of talented people out there that we overlook. I want to go back to the hard work part a little bit because uh, I think there are many threads through the book in your story, but I think hard work is that maybe one of the foundational pieces of it again and again and again. Um, you see that coming up. Why do you think the notion of hard work, we kind of joked about just a little bit now. Why do you think that has become controversial these days? You know, I don't, I, I should ask you guys that. You've interviewed Jeep <laughs> right? Because um, I don't know, some people feel things should be easier, that therefore it's not fair if, if, if it's, you know, you have to work so hard for something. Right. And I guess I never thought about what was fair or wasn't fair. I just took the situation and went forward. And, you know, to the point, uh, maybe if I, I'll just jump this, unless you don't want me to go there, you know, in my time, I would be the only woman in all these situations because uh, I know many of our listeners are young, but at the time, this is the 70s, late 70s, and I was in engineering and there weren't many men at, or women at all. I would be the only woman in many of these classes. Mm-hmm. And it would just fuel that hard work point because I knew if I spoke up, if I said the wrong thing, you know, I felt people would make fun of me. They would remember, you know, they would say, oh, see, she's dumb. She doesn't belong here. And so it made me study harder and harder and harder. In in fact, I felt knowledge was a shield to that feeling. And I'm not saying it was right that I felt that way, but I did. And over time, though, that would build my confidence, right? Because then I'd always be more prepared than the next guy in the room. 
Yeah. And now, over time, this would be like a sickness. I'd be so prepared. <laughs> I, I had to, I was killing people with it. But I mean, it was just, I, I, I am like so ultra prepared on things yeah. um, that would stay with me, would be how it would go. But I always felt that that hard work, in my experience, always equated to the ball moving forward. I mean, has that been the case for the two of you? Do you feel that way or not? I feel, and Sharon will tell tell me, tell this about me too, where it's like, I hate being that person who's like, I worked hard and I got like, I hate, you know, kind of the sense of like patting myself on the back. But I would like to think that uh, I was in the right place at the right time, but I was also able to put in the effort to be able to get to that next level. Uh, because if I hadn't done that, you know, it doesn't matter if you're in the right place at the right time, because you're That's just right. not the right fit for this thing. You just didn't put in the effort for it. So the effort counts for a lot of it. And uh, Shriram will tell me that I'm the most persevering person oh, yes. he's met, <laughs> uh, I mean, which I don't know if it's a good thing coming from him because he'd be like, you just never give up. Like you're always like on this over and over and over again. I mean, just going to point out parts of Aati's story. Uh, you know, she's the first person from her kind of family, so to kind of go to school in a different city. Uh, definitely the first person to kind of get at the time like a high paying job in tech, move countries. And then when she was at Microsoft, people would tell her like, oh, you're just done. Like you can just retire here. Um, and it was a well-known brand, but then she went out to become founder. So I see, yeah. I see her do this again and again. She's incredibly focused on getting things right, which drives me crazy. But that's a separate, <laughs> that's a separate different kind of show. <laughs> Typo in anything I do, I'm going to hear about it. Um, but uh, uh, but I, I think that it kind of goes back to the first thing you said, which is I, I really believe you can define yourself as a victim yeah. or you can attack the world and the things you can control. And the, one of the few things you can control is you can put in more time and more effort than the other guy or gal. I do think there is a tendency these days to be like, just define yourself as the victim. Uh, and look, there are huge reasons why you may not have the, had the access that you deserve and there are you know structural forces that work against you. But I think our story uh, and the story of the show and a lot of what we do is ideas like, hey, the world is open and you can do amazing things with your laptop and an internet connection. So go out there and put in the effort. Yeah, no, I agree. I think uh, to me, like leading to that, one question I had for you, Jenny, was when we see leaders, really successful, accomplished people who've been through adversity earlier in their lives, there are two paths to this, right? One is you can be successful by being risk averse, picking one thing, just sticking with it and just doing that rest of your life because you're so uh, scarred by, oh my God, but the failure state looks terrible and I've been there, I don't want to do that. But then most people we see always pick the other path, which is I have nothing left to lose. Like I've already been there. I just have to keep pushing myself. I have to keep taking chances. So reading your book, I know you're very much in that camp. Why do you think that is? And what, yeah. what about taking risks drives you? Yeah, you, you and Artsy, you and Triam should write a book yeah. about together about yourself. <laughs> you know, seriously, because you intuitively, I think, feel many of these same things that I wrote about in that bad idea about, you know, when you have something bad happen. And I would always say to people, hey, look, there's always a way forward. I've seen bad and this isn't bad. Yeah. Meaning, if, you know, what happened early in my life when you say adversity of some kind is with others, that set a bar for bad. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. Next to that, I mean, tell me yes. what could be worse? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And so when things would even at work be so dear, terrible, I'd always say to you, hey, look, there's no bad ending here. Yeah. And because that's bad and that's not what's happening here, you know? And so you have your health, you have your family, 
you know, some of the things that really matter. I, I had a conversation with Brene Brown mm-hmm. and about, because there's like a, a little quiz in a room and said, well, how many people think to be really successful, you have to have suffered a tragedy of some sort? Mm-hmm. And the group was like 50-50 mm-hmm. on that topic. I asked her her opinion of that topic and she said, well, I don't think you have to have had a tragedy, but to R.T. Your's words, you have to have gone through adversity of some kind. Right. I believe most successful people have found that to be true. Right. And just talking about it in the spirit of even um, people raising young children right now, yeah. you know, if you take care of every problem, they never deal with this feeling. Yeah. And um, as hard as it is as a parent to watch that of a niece and nephew or child, but to let them go through that. And I do think there was truth in that, right? And so you have to come through some kind of adversity. And then to your comment about, you know, we're looking at risk as good or bad, mm-hmm. right? And tell the story in the book that I think is very germane to all of us. I found it true in every country I would talk to, to women in particular, but it's true for honest men too, actually, in that um, kind of mid of my career, I, I started to get jobs that were very different than my previous job. Mm-hmm. So I viewed those as high risk. As you said, yeah, I could keep doing the same thing, tried and true. And at one time I worked, I was probably an early executive even by that and offered a very big job. My boss goes, hey, I'm going to go move to a new job and I think you should get my role. And I said, woof, I'm not ready for your role. I've only done a third of it. I couldn't do the whole thing. Give me two more years. It's too risky. And he said, well, go to the interview. I went to the interview. I got offered the job, but I didn't answer it right. And he said, do you want the job? And I said, um, I'll go home and talk to my husband about it. Mm. And the man looked at me and he said, um, okay. And I went home, talked to my husband. My husband's like, mm-hmm, listening, I'm talking, talking, talking. And he finally says to me, because Jenny, do you think a man would have answered the offer that way? He said, look, this isn't gender. But I know you in six months, three months, you're going to be like, I got it. I'm ready for the next thing. Right. And why do you do this to yourself? You know, that you're looking at everything you can't do versus everything you can do. And there are studies about that on women. I went in the next day. I took the job and Ian looked at me and he said, don't do that again. Yeah. And I, I said, <laughs> I understand. Mm-hmm. Because it, to me, that is a story that crystallized something that is like, it was should have been the alternate title of the book, which is, Growth and comfort never coexist. Yeah. Never. Yeah. And that if you're going to grow, you're going to get uncomfortable. And it, for me, I'm telling you, even to this day, I love getting nervous because I'm like, oh, if yeah. I am nervous, yeah. this means I am learning something. Yeah. And I would start to associate nervousness and uncomfort with a good thing, not a bad thing. Yeah. And I think if, you know, because I say to most people, like, close your eyes. When have you learned the most? And most people will tell me it's a story of risk. Yeah. And I said, well, now why can't we all translate that into everything? You know, and so then I would do riskier and riskier things because I would start to say, well, yeah. this is how you actually grow is yeah. to take risk. I also think when you look at a uh, failure state, like when you're going through it, you feel like, oh my God, this is so massive. I would never survive this. This is bad. And then Time goes by and you look back and you're like, that wasn't that bad, actually. Like, you know, it's all in your head in that moment. And so now I train myself to be like, remember how I thought how big that was going to be? It's not. It just never ended up being that way. If anything, that was actually net net good for me. Kind of using that to level set future disaster states. 
so that it's never as yeah, bad as it's going to be. Archie, that is so true. I tried, I was just talking to someone the other night who was in the middle of something very difficult, but I kept trying to say, I'm telling you, in six months, this isn't going to feel the same, right? <laughs> yeah. And, and it's true. try to say that. I mean, it's easy for an old dog to say it, but I mean, it is so true. <laughs> yeah. That's what I tell people when they ask me about Twitter. It'll be very different six months from now. But that's a different kind of yeah. show, too. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, now we should start the interviewer. Oh, my goodness. Uh, 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 you know, I, 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 I want to get to your time as CEO, but before that, one of the there's a little anecdote you talk about in the book um, which struck me is when one of your mentors uh, or maybe managers at the time asks you to change your wardrobe to kind of fit in more uh, with the people you work with. And that kind of struck me from a few different directions, right? One was, I was like, I don't know what that kind of, con that person was obvious, at you, where you put it, you had your best interest in mind and he was trying to watch out for you. One was, I was like, would that kind of conversation happen today uh, was one. But the second part of it was, I think a lot of folks, especially younger, deal with imposter syndrome, maybe even older, I deal with it uh, all the time. And you always think about fitting in and fitting in can mean like, for example, I would be very self-conscious about I have an Indian accent or I look different. I'm I'm ridiculously tall. I'm six foot six. And everything from the way you dress, the way you present yourself, and there's kind of a few threads in there. So I'm curious to kind of get your recollection of that and also how it ties into maybe advice you would give somebody who's trying to say, hey, should I fit in or can I be me? I sometimes I think, no, why did I tell that story mm. in the book, right? Mm. And it, it's got so many facets to it. And one of them is just this fit in point. Like I never thought of the word imposter, but many people have brought it up, right? It, so clearly I though felt it. I mean, even by saying I was nervous about all these things. Right. And I even when I went to university, I went to a very good school. I all but my scholarship, right? It was I was again, back to Artie's point, you prepare and then you get lucky for those moments yeah. because you prepared. And it was a school that I only applied to two schools. I one was I knew I could get in, and the other was, pray to God I could get in. And I knew that they would accept if they if I could get in, they would find a way to financially provide. That's their their philosophy. The reason I tell that is I went to Northwestern in Chicago, and most kids are pretty well to do. So I had no clothes compared to anyone else. I had nothing, and I remember going out and buying in that day. A shirt with a little alligator. I had one. Mm. I bought a pair of these. They call them top spiders. I don't even know if they make them anymore, but like these boat looking shoes and a pair of corduroy pants in like, okay, then I could fit in and no one would notice. But that's like, I had one pair of all of that. Mm -hmm. And that was this idea of to fit in. So I, I fast forward in time and I tell that story. He, he actually talks about what I wear and he tells me I should lose weight as well. I was about 80 pounds more than I am right now. And I knew he did to Shram's point. I knew he had my best interest at heart. So I really wasn't angry. Mm -hmm. I, I listened to him because he was trying to say to me, look, I can't control the rest of the world, he's saying. I, I they, All those people up there that are successful, they don't look like you do right now. Mm -hmm. They look like this. And I think you're so talented, I don't want something to stand in your way, but... I'm only going to say it. He was extremely uncomfortable telling me. I have to tell you, I mean, I think he was like nervous yeah. as a cat. Yeah. And so I, I walked away and I remember thinking, well, I didn't do anything at the time about it. I never did. I, the only time I ever, when I finally took care of my weight was when I really, it was about my own health. When we can come back to that. When mm -hmm. I, I knew for endurance, I needed to be healthier. And so I would eventually come back around. But I, I think 
what I tell everyone to take away is one part. Before you react so negatively to what people say to you, consider the context and why they're saying it, right? And give people the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. I, he wasn't, he was really trying to help, point mm -hmm. one. Second, okay, the world's not fair. It's yeah. not. Something you said a minute ago, control what you can control. Yeah. It, and that's one way to deal with that kind of a world, right? Like, so people say to me, uh, why do you wear this headband? I've like worn a headband for 50 years. Mm. I'll wear it to keep the hair out of my eyes. Okay, I can control that. Right. It's, it's it's like nothing. If uh, I wear them when they're in style, out of style, I don't really care. Mm. It's hair out of face. And so that thought of control, you know, was what I took away out of that from him. Like he was trying to say, you know, can I, could I control what I could control? And yeah. so- that was now to this day and age, Sri Ram, it'd be hard for me to have that conversation with someone, I think. Yeah. Um, I probably, if I did, it would be approaching it from their health standpoint. Mm -hmm. Right. And from them, or at least giving them the freedom to feel if they needed to take care of themselves, they had the freedom to do that, right? right. In time, right? Because, you know, over time, what I would also learn, people would always say about work-life balance. Yeah. And I think my biggest lesson I try to share in the book is, Nobody can do that but you. Yeah. That true. bosses and companies will take all you can give, even the best ones, me yeah. including, you know, and, and only you could set a boundary. And if you do, you know what? By large, people who are around it, actually, right? And yeah. that would be when I would eventually get healthy. I would say, you know what? I got to start. I got to start somewhere. I'm going to exercise. Yeah. And I can remember this is again old days you will not, you were born, but I would print my emails because, you know, they were emails. And I would sit on an exercise bike and read them, you know, and throw them <laughs> on the ground and separate the good and the bad. And, but because I felt so guilty. And so the point is, can you create a boundary and give yourself time and not feel guilty? Right. Because right. in the end, you're a better performer uh, if right. you do that. Oh, totally. I mean, I, I, you know, when I said, read that section, I had two thoughts. One was maybe 10, 15 years ago, I might have been like, oh, my God, how can they say that? I would be offended or like not offended, but just like angry. But now I almost like look at it. What would I have done? I'd be like, oh, thank you. Like, thanks for just taking the time because everyone is so focused on themselves. The fact that somebody would just take any time to tell you how to be better because they mean well for you. Like, you know, they don't they don't treat it as oh, I don't care. Like she's overweight, whatever. Uh, but they actually yes. meant in, in good in, in good faith. They wanted you to do better. And I think yes. I would kind of appreciate that now, but that wisdom yeah. is like 15 years later that yeah. comes in. But the other part of me was, if this was an Indian family, we would all be used to it because your your relatives will constantly tell you if you put on an extra pound, that, oh my God, like the way, like I think our parents, the way they would say it is, you look healthy and that is not a yeah. good thing. Yeah. When, when, when your parents say you look healthy, it means you are overweight and you need to get on that treadmill right now. Yeah. Uh, and so we are all used to being yeah. told how we look. Oh yeah, own. but I'll just say, by the way, for the record, uh, you know, Aarti from time to time, she'll be like, she'll tell me, you look a bit chubby, you know, <laughs> might need to cut back on the uh, ice cream just a little bit, right? Might need a haircut too, right? And she doesn't hold back. So I'm like, oh God, okay. But I'm like, all right, fine. I nice. get it. So, I'm very nice. Yeah, You're right. did, you, did you react negative? How did you react to the story? I'm a guy, so it's a very different context and I'm a different... Uh, I, when I've had variation that happened to me, I've been incredibly grateful because I feel like that person is trying to tell me a truth 
that I may not be aware of, but everyone else in the room is aware of. And I don't need to listen to this person, but you know, but more often than when somebody's trying to tell me, and if I believe that person has my best interests at heart, oh, this is actually important. Um, and usually, you know, I, I, you know, I've had something like that, you know, um, you know, fairly recently too. And I've been so grateful because it may be hard and it's painful and you kind of go through this arc of like, no, right. And then, okay, yeah, maybe. And then, all right, okay, maybe you're not the only person. For example, sometimes, you know, when somebody tells me, oh, you want to fit in more, like, I know I'm making a conscious choice to stand out and uh, I'm decisive about it. And maybe what this person telling me is like, well, you're not actually standing out in the way you think you're standing out, you're standing out in some other way. But that's different too. But usually when somebody tells me, and they come from a place of goodness, which I think is very important, I'm usually grateful, but I don't I know. I think Shriram is probably the nicest person you will meet. And I mean that like genuinely, because he assumes good intent with everyone all the time. Like I'm that person who like sounds like a terribly mean, petty person next to him. Because I'd be like, but how can they say that then? And he'd be like, well, you know, maybe they just like, blah, they, maybe they just had a bad day. Like the most like horrible thing. And he would still like frame it as maybe they're going through something. And I'd be like, man, like I feel like a terrible person now because like there here's this guy who'd come in and it was like, to do, do like just like, you know, jumps through life and is just like means well, thinks well, intends well and expects the same from everybody else. Oh so you will never hear him ever say anything mean about anyone because I just don't think there is a bad thought in his head. Yeah. Uh, well, we should it's end the right here. Shriram, that is a really wonderful quality. And I think particularly in so many countries where the world's divided and people assume bad, not good. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if yeah. they would just start by assuming good intent, yeah. I think they'd be surprised, you know, because it's often not bad. And so I, I just think you should do a show on that topic. Oh my gosh, thank the, you, thank you. Uh, I don't know how to react to this. Okay, th <laughs> thank you. Uh, uh, but that is, okay, but then <laughs> switching gears, we've had a variety of you know CEOs and founders on the show. And you and Indra, I think are very interesting because you both taken over historic companies. And you know, I, by the way, I, I, just re I recently read, uh, you know, Watson's uh, biography. It's a fantastic book, you know, just one of the OG, you know, American entrepreneurs uh, in so many ways. So you doesn't get more historic than IBM. What I wanted to get to was when you have a founder who's a CEO and you want to make a bet the company move, there is a certain God divine given authority where you're the founder, I can do what I want. You see this every once in a while where like Steve Jobs comes back to Apple or, uh, you know, Larry Page comes back to Google, whatever. And there's kind of a certain narrative and, um, a, um, you know, imperative that goes with that. But you and Indra are interesting because, you know, you worked up the ranks and you take over a storied franchise and you, and you know that it's going to be, there was a person, multiple people before you and there's probably going to be multiple people after you, hopefully, if you do your job right, but you still make these bet the company moves yeah, in your it case. Transforms the business. Which transforms the business in your case, obviously, with what's in AI, with the cloud, uh, there are several others. I'm curious to get your sense of your the mindset because there's sometimes a sense in Silicon Valley that you have to be only the founder can do that, right? And in your well, case, you're not the founder, but maybe you are. I'm kind of curious to get your thinking or perspective on all of this. Yeah, such a good question. And I think while you're not the founder, you do feel an immense responsibility of stewardship mm. to do what you said a minute ago, that that it should last well beyond you. And in some ways, it's a little bit more freeing because I know that what I might do, it won't be until the next generation that they see the benefit of it, right? And I know I'm only a steward for a small period of time and it has to endure. Mm. And 
you know, it was one of the lessons I had to learn the hardest, which was what to change, but what should endure. And I think everyone has to ask themselves that question because endure doesn't mean not modernize. I mean, you can modernize. But I got in trouble if I tried to take the company too far away from what it should endure, kind of like what it is, is it soul? I think people might use that word, yeah. but what are you at your soul? Mm -hmm. Like at our soul, we're not a consumer company. At our soul, we're an enterprise company. One other thing different than, maybe different than a founder. I think you feel this essence that um, society allows you to exist this mm -hmm. long, mm -hmm. and therefore you have to balance community, employees, uh, shareholders, um, mm -hmm. customers, partners, it's a little bit second nature that they're all there all the time. And so you live in a gray world all the time. I always say it's like not black and white, one or the other. And so I think that notion of how to advance them in total over time, any one moment, somebody's getting a better advantage than another, but in total, and that therefore you have to like, I felt in technology, particularly you guys, and right now we could talk about chat, oh, yeah. that you won't, if you're going to particularly make the tough stuff, but even if you are a user, like we all are going to be, you got to manage the upside and the downside of it. That's part of being a responsible steward for the long run, mm -hmm. that you manage the upside and the downside. So part, like I, my lesson was what should endure, um, be really clear about that. The second part would be this, you know, manage upside and downside of technology. And, and some of that means preparing society to think it'll have a better future because of technology, not a worse future. Otherwise, this doesn't end have a happy ending. Yeah. And uh, when people don't think they have a better future, they do things like revolt. And, you know, history shows lots of bad stuff happens. They don't like democracy, lots of things. So I think right now we're at a touchy moment that, you know, when you introduce tech, don't just think of the good things it does mm. in parallel, like a foot on the brake and a foot on the gas at mm. the same time, what mm. we do. So I got a little off track to your question. No, but, no, no. You know, a little different than just being a founder, I, I think... Um, in some ways, I know founders have a very long-term view, but I think as a steward, you have an even longer one because yeah. you know what has to endure past you, right? Yeah. yeah. And specifically for IBM, did you have a framework coming in as like, you know, okay, day one, you're CEO. Did you look at this and go, this is my plan. This is a framework that I'm going to go apply to go transform this business. Like, how do you think about operating yeah. a business as big as IBM with acquisitions and yeah. everything else? Yeah, that is different for somebody who's in a, in a startup position. And I, I knew when I came in in 2012, I mean, it's obvious, um, cloud, AI, mobile, social, and not one, but like, there's all these trends at once. Yeah. And we had done well in the previous era, but we weren't prepared for the next era. Yeah. So I walk into that movie knowing that all this has to change. And to me, my way could be different for others. I had chose a framework that was strategic beliefs because I mm -hmm. said, you got to believe something before you can move people to it. Mm -hmm. And so I really began by like, what did I really believe? And the three things I believed were that um, there was going to be an absolute new era of mm -hmm. computing, how right that turned to be. See, we mostly dealt with enterprise CIOs, but if you go back in time at that moment, the rise of the developer mm -hmm. as like an independent voting body was really becoming strong. Mm -hmm. And the third thing was going to be, and this would be turn out to be the hardest for us, that the world was becoming so consumable and fast. Perceptions and sort of like what you should be was being set by consumer companies. So Apple, and, you know, so now the iPhone's out a couple of years at that time. Mm -hmm. But 
it's so simple. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we would ship a product, it would have a manual this thick. Yeah. And with this plums, it has no manual. Yeah. So then you go to work and you're like, what is this thing I got to go deal with, you know? <laughs> and then, yeah. And we made really complex products. And sometimes when you're engineering driven, you then want to show the world all your, all your intricacies and your complexity. The world was going the opposite direction. Yeah. And so, you know, I would learn. So how do you manage a big company like that? First one was I had these strategic beliefs about that, meaning that the, the new era would be there and buyers would be there. And boy, were we going to have to change the way we work. Mm. Speed, syllable. Mm-hmm. And honestly, that last one about how you work turned out to be harder than what we made. Right. And I see that happening with companies right now that that are now 20 years old or yeah. 15 or 10. They're going like, oh, we're getting slow. We have yeah. a legacy. Yeah. We have these. I mean, people can wake up and go, hey, let's be slow. Yeah. It happens slowly over time because of all of the, you know, the complexities of the organization grow. And I, I always say to people, like, be careful. Watch and focus as hard on how work gets done as what work gets done mm. because you know, that's one of the most important things to change about a company. We were hearing so many stories of, you know, people get to try to be more efficient. Like Meta, is, we had declared this year of efficiency. And I think what you just said about, it's a gradual process. Somebody, I don't know, I don't know, somebody said, you know, like these things are like kind of like a, a, a comb over, but it's just gradual. Over time, it's happening and nobody's pointing it out to you. <laughs> and one day, you know, you have like a terrible comb over. And uh, well, there's a lot to I'll read into that. So the, the, I think some of these companies are the same, where one day you were a, you know, young, fast moving company. And then one day you wake up and you have five layers of directors. Everyone's trying to org build and empire build. There are five pre-meetings before a meeting. And these are all the tiny things. It's it's amazing how often it's not the big decisions, often the tiny things of how often does a meeting get scheduled? Who needs to sign off? Uh, those things should add up. And it's such a gradual process. And I think this year is very interesting because a lot of companies, you know, maybe post zero interest rate have woken up to it and are trying to switch back and we'll see what happens. I'll give you another, I love your analogy, but I did, I do remember one Warren Buffett said to me, which was, um, you know, expenses are like, you know, grass growing. You have to keep mowing and, or watching your nails grow. They have to be looked. I mean, it, it is, it just happens. Right. And, and I think a lot of people are kind of like, you know, now they're, it's a new world to have to manage that and growth at the same time. (laughs) You, I think in some ways we're ahead of the curve with AI, AI, and obviously famously Watson, we are living in the year of, uh, Chat GPT, uh, you know, I, I am curious to get your just your state of the union of how we think about AI. You've been thinking about this for uh, many, many okay, years, no. uh, and but maybe just quickly, you know, uh, on what's it? Do you is there a part of you that looks at Chat GPT and goes like, "Gosh, I wish that was Watson instead." Chat is a is a large language model, right? So parts of Watson were not all. Um, I mean, AI's had three or four renditions. I mean, you know, mature different mm-hmm. ch- journeys over time. But yeah, part of me does absolutely look at this and say, I've been warning you about a lot of this for a decade. I feel like I've been writing about responsible AI and AI ethics for over a decade. And I thought, God, no one's listening. And it, it's a lesson one more time. Because now it's in so many people's hands, back to the lessons of an iPhone, is that now all of a sudden, woo, everybody's woke up, right? Because it took Netflix um, three and a half years to get to a million users. Mm. You know, it took Jack five days. 
and now it's at like 150 million or whatever it is. So it's in your social conscious now. All right. So these developments come that way. So yes, part of me can't help but say, I've learned all these lessons already. Listen, listen. And I mean, I wrote this book two years ago and there's a chapter called Good Tech. It's yeah. about this topic. Yeah. And, you know, in a nutshell, what I would say is be careful. The issues are not the technology. It's going to be trust in this technology. So the one word I'd leave you, it's trust. And so it's going to bring up all the issues around does this make you and I man better? Does it make man better? Does it augment us? Who gets ownership of the data and who should benefit from then the, the insights from that data, right? We're going through, you're hearing all that. Does, yeah. And is it explainable? Ah, this is where chat really, mm. yeah. is it explainable? Because history, I mean, Henry Kissinger wrote about this. He said, Dr. Kissinger said, you know, when things are not explainable, people revolt or fear them. Mm. And we, we need, and as you know, there are many parts of generative AI that are not explainable yet. Mm -hmm. And and so for you and I, and therefore it needs guardrails. Mm -hmm. And because I think there's many great things that can be done, but Sriram, my biggest thing I learned with Watson, the biggest challenges were not the technology. Yeah, It was humans' ability because when it is an important decision, you have a very different tolerance for error than when it's a insignificant decision like a movie or the answer to a search that ah when it's your health care mm -hmm. your financials i learned very different even when even i mean watson was passing medical exams watson could do better than a doctor i mean watson maybe got 10 percent wrong a doctor gets 30 percent wrong mm -hmm. but people say whoa 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 10 percent it has a lot to do i say the word trust and therefore more care about how we're introducing it and to do what thing. Because if we do it right, this could be, you know, I think wonderful to get more things, more important things to more people. Um, we do it wrong, and I think we end up in a mess over this. It, or we get a lot of regulation that, you know, is a, is a quagmire. Oh, yeah, that, and, and, um, so if anyone... Right. I mean, because you can't, you can't stop it. I know there have been letter. I mean, you can't stop it, but what you can do is govern its usage. Like say, right. okay, let's use it for these kind of problems right now, not these kind yet, right? Mm -hmm. And I, even I was just, I don't know if the Yale guys, I said for education, it's going to change how education's done. It, and yeah. it will make people have to learn critical thinking. You know, don't bother with memorizing things because you can get them all summarized here, right? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So I would embrace it in those kind of ways. But I really think more thought should be given to how it's used than the technology itself. I think you're spot on. So what? Let's give that. Your husband is like such a delightful character uh, uh, in the book. And uh, there's a great moment when he drills holes in the uh, the basement of your house. And uh, he said, yeah, we should have him on the show sometime too. But when I went into a book saying, like, there's going to be the pharmacy of IBM, you were not the way I expected. And you know what? Uh, you, you should have more power, right? Uh, that's, that's going to be my takeaway, right? Like you should have more power because I, I think your story... Uh, what you've done and what you can you do is just truly inspiring. I think uh, for me, um, there are a few things that really stood out just in our conversation and with the book, how you do it being really important, more important even than what you do. I think for me it was like, ah, oh, I never thought about it that way. Um, but also there are all these other things that we both uh, talk to each other about but never had a framework to go articulate. When we read the book, we were like, that's right. That's exactly it. And uh, there are things about, you know, being tech positive or tech can be used as a force for good. Thinking through it from that standpoint, 
thinking about hard work, like our conversations about like, you have more control over your destiny and your life than you give yourself credit for. And it's really up to you. You're accountable for your own actions. And I looked at that and went, yes, that's right. Um, and also like thinking about it from the framework of, yes, you have adversity. How have you been able to overcome it and be able to go out and tell your story? I think it's just really important. And it's so inspiring for me. So thank you so yeah. much for just making the time. Thank you guys both. Thank you for reading it, sharing it, hosting. You're a delight to be with. Oh, okay. So thank you. why so many people listen. And I mean, honestly, you too. The next thing is for you to write a book. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, all right. We'll get it. But Jenny, this was amazing. Thank, thank you so, so much for doing you. this with us.